You know, today, buying a car has become a science. Research starts online. Consumer reports, the car facts, these are definite must-reads. And then once you select the car, you take it to your own mechanic for the 50-point inspection. You go over the possible purchase with a fine-tooth comb. And yet I can recall the day when purchasing a car required kicking some tires. You remember that? A buyer actually got out into the lot and physically looked at the cars. You circled the body and you peered at the engine and you performed a visible, tangible inspection. You might even kick a tire or two to see if it stayed bolted to the wheel. Today, the expression kicking the tires is synonymous with performing any kind of personal, hands-on inspection. I mean, a single guy takes a girl from the office for a cup of coffee, and what's he doing? He's kicking the tires. Pay a visit to the campus of a college you're interested in attending, and again, you're kicking the tires. Hey, when you check it out, when you try it on, when you look it over, you're kicking the tires. And that's what we plan to do over the next couple of sessions here in 1 Timothy. Last week, we popped the hood on the church, and we noticed its muscle car power. We are God's family. We are the church of the living God. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the most important entity on the planet. And Paul is instructing Timothy in this letter how to live and how to lead in the household of God. Paul writes to his young protege about calling and longevity and order and character and doctrine and function and kindness, all strategic topics. These are the underlying threads that we're going to be tackling in the weeks to come. But today and next time, we're going to do a once-over. We're going to kick a few tires. We're going to survey three chapters this morning, and we're going to learn what lies deeper. 1 Timothy begins, verse 1, chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. This term apostle, it means ambassador. We'll talk about the office of the apostle later, but the term refers to a man sent out as a representative. And this colored all that Paul was and did and said. He was always conscious that he represented realities bigger than himself. He represented God and the Lord Jesus and the gospel and the church and the grace of God. And when you represent these things, this is an important job. He writes to Timothy, a true son in the faith. Reminds me of Little Billy, the pastor's six-year-old son at church, Billy would always introduce himself as Pastor Allen's son. One night, his mom suggested that he drop the Pastor Allen's son and, and be his own man. Introduce himself as just Billy Allen. Well, the next Sunday, a visitor asked Billy his name. And so following his mother's advice, he replied, I'm Billy Allen. The man replied, Billy Allen, oh, you must be Pastor Allen's son. Billy answered, well, Dad says so, but Mom's not so sure. (laughs) Hey, unlike Pastor Allen's wife, Paul had no qualms about advertising the father-son relationship he had with Timothy. According to Acts chapter 16, Timothy's natural father was not a believer, and though his mother Eunice and his grandma Lois were Christians in godly examples. Listen, 
A mom's influence goes only so far. Here's the stats. Guys, pay attention. When a father is an active believer, that means that 75% of the time, his kids become active believers. But when mom is the only active believer in the family, the odds for his kids following Jesus, they decrease to 15%. This means that the father factor is crucial in a kid's spiritual formation. This is why Eunice, she jumped for joy when Paul took her young son under his wing. He became a spiritual father to Timothy. And Timothy became Paul's faithful friend and troubleshooter. You'll see in the New Testament, he puts out fires for Paul in Corinth and in Thessalonica and in Philippi and in Ephesus. Timothy became quite a capable pastor himself. Paul greets Timothy, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, when Paul writes to the churches, he greets them grace and peace. But when he writes to pastors, he adds mercy. (laughs) Why? Because we need a lot of it. I can tell you firsthand that a pastor's job is harder and his responsibilities are greater and his judgment will be stricter. That means he really needs mercy. Acts 19, Paul started the church there in Ephesus. It became a successful church. And when he moved on, he put Timothy in charge. And here he writes to Tim, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. I mean, needless to say, Timothy had some big shoes to fill. Pastoring in the wake of Paul is like coaching after Bear Bryant or filling in for Billy Graham. And you'll notice Tim was a bit timid as you read this letter. He needed a holy nudge from time to time. Throughout the letter, Paul follows a pattern. He will urge Tim, and then he'll praise God. He'll challenge Timothy to press on by getting Timothy to look up. That's what we need sometimes. And the first thing Paul urges Timothy to do is to remain. On October the 10th, 2010, 10, 10, 10, I'm going to talk to you a bit about the challenges and the joys of remaining in the same place and in the same post for 30 years. To my surprise, longevity has brought with it its own rewards. In fact, I think whether it's a job or whether it's a marriage or whether it's a church, you'll find great blessing when you choose to remain. Paul urges Timothy to remain, that you may charge some, that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Notice, falsehoods and speculations were seeping into the church. And Timothy needed to resist both. And this is still the central job of a pastor. Falsehoods deny the truth of Scripture. Speculations may not deny the Bible, but they distract us from it. They're the emails you get. And you look at them and you think, that can't be. That's so strange. Strange speculations. They take believers down irrelevant rabbit trails. Things like Bible codes and 666 interpretations and UFOs and conspiracy theories. They're all clever speculation. 
but they don't really do much to encourage godly living and biblical understanding. Paul is saying to us, never let tabloid overshadow truth. Our focus needs to be on the scripture. For verse 5 tells us that it's in result, now the purpose of the commandment. Here's what scripture does for you. It produces love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. Understand, Christian truth always produces love in our hearts. Not arrogance, not fear, not pride, not elitism, not some argumentative attitude. It produces love. Live the Bible and you'll live well with a pure heart. You'll sleep well, Paul says, with a clean conscience. You'll work well with a sincere faith. But notice verse 6. Some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. There were false teachers in Ephesus who were promoting legalism. Rather than preach grace, they were getting folks to jump through legalistic hoops. They had all kinds of rules and rituals and requirements that went far beyond the gospel's demand for simple faith. Ever heard of hula hoops? Well, beware of holy hoops. You got to worship on this day. Or you got to speak in tongues. Or you got to be baptized with this formula. Or you got to read from our version. Or you got to vote for this political party. Or you got to educate your kids our way. Do this, avoid that, or you'll be a second class Christian. Hey, legalists will say, follow our stipulations, or you'll never know God's best. Hey, that's simply not true. Faith is not about towing a line. It's about following Jesus. That's what it's about. And in verse 8, Paul rebukes the legalists. He says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Did you know it's possible to use the Bible but do so in unbiblical ways? It it reminds me of the guy who fell on hard times. He turned to the Bible. Good thing. But but he, he didn't quite know what he was doing. He closed his eyes. He plopped his finger down on a page. He opened his eyes and it said olive oil. He took it as a sign. He invested in Texas oil wells. Earned millions. But soon the wells dried up. So he went back to the Bible for more information. Opened it up, put his finger down on the page and read, Paul was placed in the stocks. It's another sign. He invested in the stock market. Once again became a millionaire. Of course, recently the stock market has taken a dive. And so again, he opened his Bible. This time his fingertip landed on the words, chapter 11. (laughs) Hey, this is why faithful pastors need to teach the Bible faithfully. False teachers can use the law unlawfully. And Paul comments on the correct use of the law in verse 9. He says, knowing this that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane. You see, the person with rebellion in his heart is the one who needs boundaries for his hands. You need the do's and don'ts if you lack the proper wants. But a Christian has been made a new creation. We've been given new desires. Therefore, rather than be bound by the law, a believer needs to be released to love. Hey, remember the law is like an x-ray. 
It shows the break, but it doesn't fix the break. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We gain God's forgiveness and God's favor by faith and by faith alone. Why live with the law looking over your shoulder when the Holy Spirit now lives in your heart? Over the last 30 years, I've discovered that people live far more godly lives when they're bathed in God's grace than when they're flogged with the law. Paul says the law is not for the righteous, but for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. These are people who lack God's love. The law is for fornicators, for sodomites. You see, it's not love to use a person for sexual gratification with no regard to what's morally best or right for them. For kidnappers, love doesn't take away another person's freedom. For liars, for perjurers, love doesn't deceive or distort the truth. He says, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. In short, you can define sound doctrine as God's love in action. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about love, not law, not more rules. It's about a love relationship we have with Jesus. And notice Paul mentions here the glorious gospel. I'm sure when he did, it brought a tear to his eye. He shares a bit of his testimony now with Timothy. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, literally a bully. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Notice he says, I was formerly. If you were writing a letter and sharing your testimony, and you used those words, what would follow? I was formerly a drug dealer, an adulterer, a hypocrite. You know, there's a line in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is told, you must know that forgetful green is the most dangerous place in these parts. Forgetful green. That's that grassy bluff where you can relax and where you just sort of forget about who you were and what you were before you became a Christian. When you forget about what God saved you from, it's the place where you get bluffed. Don't forget. Paul sure doesn't. Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. In his former life, Paul hated Christ and he killed Christians. Now he says, I'm the chief of sinners. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Christ Jesus might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. You see, with Paul, God established this marvelous precedent. He found the meanest, vilest sinner on the block. And on the Damascus off-ramp, he knocked Paul off his high horse with a bright light from heaven. He reached as low as he could go. He turned the chief of sinners to prove that he can turn anyone. And after Paul, there's now hope for us all. If the chief of sinners can get saved, you can too. 
And then Paul, how does he respond to this? He erupts in praise. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why remain at your post? Why represent him well? Because the king is worthy. And as this pattern is, after his praise, he follows it up with a new challenge. Verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You know, all wars have casualties, including the spiritual battle. And Paul mentions two men who suffered shipwreck in their faith. They denied the Lord. And they got the right foot of fellowship as a result. They got booted out of the body. You know, in my years as a pastor, this has only occurred a couple of times. And on those occasions, it was biblical and it was necessary. You know, we're going to talk much about church membership in the days ahead. It's safeguards, it's privileges, and it's obligations. And yet at times, the safeguards and the privileges have to be removed to remind a person of its obligations. Tough love even has a place in church life. Well, chapter 2 begins, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now notice, it's the church's job to pray. But for whom should we pray? Paul says, all men. And this has incredible implications. It means that no human on earth is outside the influence of your prayers. Do you understand that? God wouldn't have told us to pray for all men if there were some men for whom our prayers had no effect. This is why it's wrong to write anyone off. Never say, oh, God can't reach that person. Never say that. God says, pray for all men, for all men are within the reach of our prayers. He says, pray for all men and especially kings and all who are in authority. Recall, Paul penned this letter while the most evil tyrant the world had ever seen sat on the throne in Rome. Emperor Nero was the kissing cousin of Adolf Hitler. Nero made Attila the Hun look like a babysitter. Nero was a nut, but not a nut who couldn't be cracked if the church chose to pray. And I'm going to tell you, biblically speaking, you can criticize, you can disagree with President Obama, but not before you've prayed for him. Paul tells us, pray for those who are in authority. And how should we pray? Verse 2 outlines the church's political agenda. Here's what you can expect from your government. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Now, now in America, we get the right to vote and tax breaks and moral laws. But they're icing on the cake. Paul says, just be thankful when government stays off your back and leaves you alone. If you're allowed just some peace and quiet to live a godly life, you need to be grateful. 
And I think it's always helpful to remember the goal of the church isn't the Christianization of institutions, but the evangelization of individuals. Hey, pray for government to just stay out of our lives so that we can share our faith freely and we can live a godly life. Verse 3 tells us, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, some people think that God targets a few people, the elect for salvation. But that's foreign to the New Testament. It's the Marines that want a few good men. God wants all men to be saved. And he's appointed a middleman to broker salvation. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who? The man, Christ Jesus. If you want your sins forgiven, if you want to know the Almighty God, then neither Buddha, nor Mohammed, nor Moses, nor Mary, nor Oprah are any help to you at all. There's one mediator and only one. He's the man, Christ Jesus. And here's why Jesus can broker your salvation. Because, Paul says, he gave himself a ransom for all. Remember, Jesus died not as a criminal or as a victim or as a political pawn, but as a ransom. It was his sinless blood. That was the price required for our sinful life. Jesus is the ransom that God paid for all the sins of all mankind. And now Paul points to Jesus. Paul was a Pharisee in love with the rules of Judaism, but he had given up religion. Why? Because Jesus gave himself a ransom to be testified in due time, Paul says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I am speaking the truth of Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says, I now preach a gospel I once persecuted. Amazing grace. Now, Paul has been talking about all men. But all men, hopefully you've noticed this, come in two varieties, male and female. And in the last half of chapter 2, Paul instructs both men and women regarding their specific roles in church life. He says to men, "I I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. Now I'm sure he wants women to pray, but here he makes special mention of the men. For men are called to lead, and good leaders are praying leaders. Men should pray, lifting up holy hands, Paul says, without wrath and doubting. You know, stick a gun in my face, and what happens to my prayers? I mean my hands. Stick a gun in my face, what happens to my hands? They shoot straight up. I surrender. And that's good for men. It's good for men to surrender. When a man prays, he's bowing his life to God, and that's good for men. Verse 9 is a word to women. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. This past Friday night, I went down and 
watch Northside Columbus play football. Why? Because my daughter Natalie is the cheerleading coach. And so I went down and her cheerleaders did a couple of my favorite cheers for me. And we had a lot of fun and all. And it just brought back all kinds of memories. And I can remember teaching my daughter. I said it over and over again. Honey, you can dress mod, but dress modest. Be mod, but be modest. You can look cool without giving guys an opportunity to drool. Once I saw a teenage girl, she had this t-shirt on. It read, modest is hottest. I agree. Rather than dress to draw attention to your curves and your cleavage, ladies, a Christian gal, she dresses to highlight her inner beauty, her spirit. Here's a theme for the next Project Runway. Mod but modest. Don't hold your breath. Verse 11, Paul says, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. Now now realize, in the New Testament, there are three determiners for who ministers in the church. There's character, there's giftedness, and there's gender. Three determiners. Sadly, today's church stresses giftedness. You're talented enough, we let you perform. But Paul doesn't even mention talent. That's last on his list. His priorities are gender and character. And here Paul says that a woman should learn in silence with all submission. Now, there are examples in the New Testament where women prophesy in church. In fact, Paul tells Titus that the older ladies should teach the younger ladies. And so obviously, this isn't a strict, absolute silence. It's not like the women have to come in and and, and not say anything. This, though, is an attitude that flows from a submissive spirit. Women are willing to step back and let the men lead. This is why Paul adds in verse 12, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. You see, women have to step back and let the men lead because if you don't do that, ladies, we'll never lead. We'll let you do it. We'll go fishing. Or we'll sit there and twiddle our thumbs. If you want to take the role and and, and speak and, and, and take the lead, we'll just let you. That's why the ladies have to step back so the men will step up. In the church and in the home, here's the biblical mandate. In the church and in the home, the man is to lead and hold authority while the woman is to support and to follow. Men and women are equal before God in righteousness and in worth, but they have different roles to play in the church and in the home. Now the word here in verse 11, submission, it means to rank under. Everyone who has ever served in the, how many military people here? Everybody who's ever served in the military has met someone of a higher rank that you thought was stupid, (laughs) that you thought had lesser smarts and lesser skills than you, but because of military order, you submitted. And this is what God asks of the females in the fellowship. Men are called to lead, not because, not because they're better, but because they're called. They're called by God to do so. Men are called to assume the role of Jesus and lovingly lead. Ladies are commanded to act like the church and willingly follow. 
God wants both sexes to complement each other, not compete with one another. And please don't buy into the dribble that these roles were only applicable to the Oriental culture of the first century and don't apply today. Paul anticipates this argument in verses 13 and 14. He says that the biblical roles of male and female transcend culture. Why? Because he traces them all the way back to creation, to the very first couple. That applies to all of us. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Eve usurped her husband's spiritual authority. Adam was weak and didn't lead, and the whole human race has suffered ever since. And yet in the wake of Eve's disaster, women are consoled with a promise. Verse 15. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. The literal translation puts it, the childbearing. Now here's God's promise. A woman got us into this mess. And so a woman is going to help us get out of this mess. Messiah will enter the world through a woman, through the Virgin Mary. And because of that childbirth, faith in that childbirth, you and I can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're going to probe deeper into gender roles. We're going to talk about this in greater depth. This is very controversial in our world today. So we're going to talk about this in greater depth, but just know now that God takes these matters very, very seriously, for they convey profound truths. Now Paul begins chapter 3. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. The New Testament uses three titles for a leader, bishop, elder, and pastor. All three titles refer to the same person. Don't confuse them. And here Paul lists an elder's qualifications. And as we read through these traits, don't think of church leaders as sort of an elite band of Christian special forces. No, no, no. An elder is just a mature brother. He's just a mature believer. And so his specs are what spiritual maturity is going to look like for all of us. All Christians, hopefully, and eventually will emulate Paul's list. He begins, a bishop then must be blameless. What does that mean? That means just because a pastor preaches well, he can't be a crook. Or cuss at the umpire during the church softball games. Or hide from his creditors. He has to live in such a way that earns people's respect. Reminds me of the pastor who embezzled $25,000 from the church. One of the elders growled, We need to find that guy and get him back here so he can work off what he owes us. He's missed the point. I hope you got that. We're told he should also be the husband of one wife. Not that he has to be married and not that he can never be divorced, but rather at all times his focus is on one woman. He is a one-woman man. He's a man with room for only one woman in his head or in his bed. He's temperate. That's the opposite of having a temper. In other words, his emotions are in check. He's sober-minded or level-headed. He's a clear thinker of good behavior, hospitable. He's able to teach. Maybe not the book of Revelation in one hour, but if you want to go to heaven, he can tell you. 
not given to wine. An elder doesn't drink alcohol. Why? Because he might have to make a spur-of-the-moment decision, and he can't afford for his mind to just be a little cloudy. Not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You see, you can neglect your wife and beat your kids and still be a pretty good doctor. But you can't be a good pastor. If you can't lead your own family, you've got no business leading the family of God. And then he says, not a novice or a new Christian. And here's why. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Satan's problem was pride. You see, often a new believer, he wins a few early victories, and what happens? It goes straight to his frontal lobe. It goes right to his head. He thinks the power is in him, but he's wrong. And if he's a leader, when he falls, and he will... Sadly, the innocent people nearby will go down with him. He says, verse 7 puts sort of a wrap on the elder's qualifications. He says, moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Hey, the church today needs character, not more characters. Get too many of them. We're going to talk a lot in the days ahead about the importance of integrity in leadership. Now Paul goes on and he discusses the qualifications now of a deacon. Verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons being found blameless. Paul recommends a probationary period for a prospective leader. Why? Because it takes time to observe the real caliber of a man. Verse 11 begins, likewise, their wives. A literal translation simply puts it, women. And this either refers to a deacon's wife, or it could refer to a female deacon. The New Testament actually lists several deaconesses. See, deacon is a position of service, not authority. Thus, women served as deacons, and it brought a feminine touch to the ministry. Now here Paul lists their character. She must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. In other words, she honors God, she monitors her emotions, and she especially controls her tongue. The the literal Greek translation of the word slanderers, it's she-devil. She-devil. Don't let a she-devil get loose in the church. A woman with a wagging tongue can do devilish damage to a church. Verse 12 speaks again of the deacons. He says, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. You remember Philip, Christianity's first missionary. Stephen, its first martyr, both started out as deacons. And then Paul tells Timothy in verse 14, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. And this is what we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. How to conduct ourselves in God's family. 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. You see, truth is like a house. It provides warm shelter, but that house rests on pillars and on footers and on posts. And in the same way, God's truth is supported by the church. Only the church teaches and loves God's truth. The church is the Bible's only caretaker. Here, the church is the only place you can go and find out what God has said. And then verse 16 sums it up. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He says that this godliness, it's like this beautiful, enchanting, mysterious woman that I've fallen in love with. In verse 16, Paul tries to capture her mystique. Why is the gospel like a woman? Why is the gospel so attractive? And he tells us why. He lists her attributes. God was manifested in the flesh. Think about it. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite was an infant. The gospel begins with wonder. Jesus was justified in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit did his miracles. Jesus was seen by angels for 30 plus years. All the angels in the cosmos stopped what they were doing and gazed at Jesus' every move. They were amazed that God was now a man. He was preached among the Gentiles. This was an unexpected twist. The gospel was written by Jews, for Jews, to Jews, about Jews. But almost immediately, the king of the Jews was preached among the Gentiles and then believed on in the world. A man who never traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown has become Lord in every corner of the planet. And then he was received up into glory. What began so inconspicuously, there in the backwoods of Nazareth, in a Bethlehem stable, in the womb of a teenager, has now crescendoed in the clouds. The risen Lord has ascended to glory. And here's Paul's point. Check this out. Listen to me. Here's Paul's point. Since great is the mystery of godliness, then godly must be the men and women who guard it. You see, you kick the tires in 1 Timothy, and one truth stands out. Integrity really does matter. So here's a final thought. If God kicked your tires... Would you pass inspection? Father, help us. Help us, Lord, to continue to grow, to continue to mature, to continue to become the people that you want us to be. Lord, you've given us the keys to a mighty car, the church. Lord, we're part of it now. It's up to us to rise up and be the people you want us to be so that we can drive this car in a faithful manner. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you.